can't disappear. Maybe hit him high, but what else could he do? He can't disappear. In slow motion, it looks a little bit bad. But accidents happen. They do. He's done his knees. Yeah, he he's well, this is incredible. Now will come the magic sponge. There it is. No scissors, no tape. Built. Just a dirty old sponge and it's worked. The sponge can wipe out a pandemic. It can cure us all. Yes, welcome back to the Magic Sponge Podcast, the miracle cure for all your rugby league injury issues. I'm Brian Sini. I'm the guy behind NRL Physio and all the stuff you see on social media. We are back for our first off-season podcast. Season is done and dusted. My co-host, Physio, Big Footy Nuffy, James. Mate, you're in. It's the off-season. Look, since we last spoke, the Bronx lost the final. The Kangaroos lost the Pacific Championships. You've had to sit Gillaroo's there. Gillaroo's lost as well. Gillaroo's yeah. lost. Um, you know, we, you've had to sit there and watch Herbie Farnworth, Tom Flegler it, win their Dolphins kits. Like, how you going, mate? You, like, you know, I, I, I'm doing a welfare check at the moment. Mate, it hasn't been a lot of good times for yours truly on the sporting front. I'm sort of putting all my eggs into the cricket basket at the moment, getting them into the World Cup. So hopefully they sort of fire up and get a few more wins. But very disappointing as a Broncos fan, obviously, Epic game of footy, sad for us, um, especially because I really got my hopes up for a lot of that game. So to get it, get it done at the end with Nathan Cleary there was disappointing. And then obviously the Australian men and women's team was a bit disappointing as well to round off the season. Brian, how have you been going in the off-season though? Obviously getting a few, few things. Yeah, mate. Uh, a bit more time on my hands, which is always good. Uh, you know, not as much uh, stuff to keep on top of. Busy at work, which is always fun that time of year. Got a few holidays coming up up the beach with the kids, which will just be parenting at a different location, I think. But still some good time off work. Good to catch up with yourself last night for a few beers, which is always long overdue, and uh, got a few more opportunities to catch up with yourself and a few mates over the, you know, heading into Christmas. It's a good time of year. As much as footy's over, you know, we got cricket coming in, which is always good. We, we're both big cricket lovers. Hopefully not too many uh, injuries for us to analyse there. And the NFL's in full swing, which, you know, makes Monday mornings all that easier to get up and head to work because we can watch that. But, uh, yeah, look, let's get... Get into it. I mean, this should be hopefully a pretty quick one. We've got a few big topics to talk about, but guys, you know, uh, you know, if you've been listening to us throughout the season, what we talk about, we're going to keep it pretty, uh, yeah, cut and dried today. We, we'll go straight into talking about some injuries from uh, anything that's happened since the grand final, and then we've got a few questions just on some interesting injury situations, mostly in the NFL. But uh, yeah, without further ado, let's get into the injuries that have happened since the grand final. I don't know exactly what he's done. I would have thought it was an ankle, but I, I'm just guessing. Well, he shouldn't be out for a long period of time. I mean, I'm, I'm no doctor. We have to wait for the scans, obviously, but that'd be more positive than, than negative. Bit of an injury wrap-up, Brian, to round off the season into the off-season almost, and we're probably just going to name these people sort of one by one and just talk to them more specifically so we can get a, a bit of dialogue going about them and what your thoughts are about their off-season and what to look out for for season 2024. First cab off the rank, the biggest name on the on the run sheet here tonight is Nathan Cleary, obviously. He had a brace on his knee for a suspected PCL injury. Obviously, the... Um, the f- the photo going around on social media was Cleary's shirt off, looking the business. Um, obviously, he had Mary Fowler there as well, looking pretty cute. But what caught your eye the most was the PCL brace, interestingly. What do you want to tell us about Nathan Cleary and his PCL or what your sus- suspicions are around his PCL injury? 
Mate, I am a romantic at heart, uh, as you know. Uh, only way I hold on to my wife year after year. But uh, yeah, no, I'm a physio. Physio probably first, even before I'm a romantic. And straight on to that knee brace. Look, I'd been keeping an eye out for that because he'd been over at Bali and um, yeah, had had a knee brace on over there. And initially, the the video of the injury wasn't all that great um, when it first came out. It was a hip drop tackle from Payne Haas uh, that he got charged for, just copped a fine and, and stuff like that. I think to just to cover off on that quickly, um, to those people who are sort of asking why didn't he get more or picked up and all that kind of stuff, I mean, they get missed. We've, we've spoken about that in the past, unfortunately, with the way the tackle is. But also, like, the damage from this tackle with a PCL injury is that knee into the ground. Um, you know, the knee, Cleary's flex knee going into the ground. So not necessarily a direct kind of, you know, pain has dropped his hips onto the knee and cause the PCL to tear. That's very unlikely. It's just literally Cleary going to ground. His knee is flexed. It goes into the ground. So I don't know whether that's like played a role in the fact that because they do seem to take the injury into account. I don't know whether anyone at the match review committee would have the, uh, the smarts to know that that was it. But yeah, that, that kind of did contribute to me being like, oh, okay, maybe that's wise because it would more would have been just the contact with the ground rather than the contact of Payne Haas himself. I will say that we haven't had it completely confirmed that it is a PCL injury uh, because from the video initially I thought it might have been MCL because that's the common one for those hip drops but there was one report from Sydney Morning Herald that they were suspecting PCL and the fact he's still in a brace I mean look that could be a, a high-grade MCL too, theoretically but I would say more than likely especially the fact that he was able to play out the game you're looking at a moderate to high-grade PCL injury just makes like I'll say that again like and I hope that we get the details about just what the nature of the injury is. But for him to do what he did in, like, particularly that last half an hour, but just to play yeah. out the whole game with that injury and, and, and to perform like he did, like he would have had to gone in at halftime, had that injury cooled down, you know, and and that's when it's going to be, you know, painful. It's probably going to swell up a little bit, all that kind of stuff. He doesn't have the adrenaline pump and, and he's got to go back out there, you know, yo's off, uh, Luai's off, you know, all these things that we know. But to do all that with whatever this injury is, and it sounds like it was a moderate to high-grade PCL injury, is just, it probably won't get the fanfare that like a, you know, a, a broken face from Sam Burgess or, you know, fractured shoulder blade from Cooper Cronk did. But... I think it probably is most comparable to Burgess for me in that like Burgess obviously still played really well. Like Cronk was hidden really well in that in that grand final that he played. But for Cleary to effectively just win that game all on his own and potentially have a high-grade PCL injury is just crazy to me. I don't know, like before we keep going on about the implications moving forward, how like, you, you know, you're a Bronx fan and obviously that was a yeah. was an absolute dagger – but you sort of on the same wavelength in terms of like, oh, I just feel like it's a bit underappreciated at this point in time, just how crazy that effort is. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he deserves way more plaudits than he's been getting for it, particularly if it is high grade, you know, and, and I agree with you. I think it's probably more leading to that PCL rather than MCL injury, especially how they taped him because I was really sort of eagle eye watching how they're taping him, praying to Jesus that um, 
he wouldn't come back on and get the Panthers home, but anyway, he did. And and just when I noticed his taping, he had it sort of taped around the joint line itself, like sort of just circumferentially, as opposed to medial sort of MCL type tape. So you sort of think, well, it's probably more likely a PCLE type mechanism there. Um, but I think to your point, it's an epic effort to play with a injury like that. Consider the last try as well. You know, he, he injured that early doors too. I think it was in the first 20 minutes from memory or first 10, 10 minutes. It was very, yeah, it was like it was very early. Yeah. That's, that's right. I remember seeing that early. And you think in that last play of the game, he's stepping off that foot twice to get back under the post, win the game, um, three in a row, see you later, pack your bags, on to Mad Monday for Nathan Cleary, who can do no wrong. So I think when you put all those things together, it's just one of the great all-time grand final performances that hasn't even really factored the PCL injury into that either. That's not even part of the folklore yet. And I, I hope there is something a little bit documented. I don't think Nathan's going to come out and probably say, you know, too much to it to get more plaudits because, you know, the blokes run three in a row. Like, you can't really get much better than that. But I, I think it, it adds a good contextual layer to what he was probably going through and what he puts, pushes through and, and what those guys push through in general as well. You know, a lot of those Panthers boys, I'm sure, were carrying fairly significant things. You know, Jerome Lewis, I didn't see out the full game. Um, and, and Nathan sort of played the full game on that. Pretty amazing effort, hey. I guess back to you about implications. What do you think about the implications for him into next season, potentially, if it's high grade? Do you think they'll they'll look at just managing it non-operatively for 2024? Yeah, I think, just to your point, I think if we don't hear it from Cleary or the coach, like, you know, they're usually pretty quiet about those kind of things. The one person, just as you were saying, that popped in my head. Like, is it their... I don't look. I don't pay attention to footballing departments, but is it or footballing clubs? But is it their CEO or something that Brian Fletcher dude, who's like always in the media, like just yeah. sounding off about like just absolute rubbish a lot of the time? I feel like he'll come out and like just sing the praises from the rooftops about just how crazy it was. So surely we'll get a good Brian Fletcher, uh, you know, rant about it at some point because he's always good for that. But I think the interesting thing with PCLs to for everyone to know is that when you, even if you completely tear a PCL, you don't – or you rarely need surgery or they rarely perform surgery, uh, especially in NRL players. So, like, to get a PCL reconstructed, you're looking at – you know, six plus months rehab, whereas you put it in a brace, they do some really good rehab with it. And we've seen guys come back as soon as like, I think Adam Fanua Blake came back two weeks after completely tearing his PCL, but the usual range is kind of one to two months, uh, you know, and that's even accelerated in season. The big thing, and I would say that's obviously the way they're going to do it. If they were going to do anything surgically, they would have already done it. The thing here, and and I will point it out by saying guys like Billy Slater, I think finished his career with without a PCL in either knee, so it doesn't you know it doesn't heal or it rarely heals. So Billy Slater, no PCL in either knee. Andrew Fafita, also no PCL in either knee. Yeah, Brett GI uh, as well. GI well. and well, I was going to bring up GI as like. Because this is the consideration, right? And and I was even, when I posted about it, I had a really good input from a physio who used to work for the Warriors um, and has worked for a few NRL clubs. And, and like, he was sort of saying, and it's, it's definitely the way I feel about it, is that even though 
your PCL injuries, they, they don't require surgery and they don't undergo surgery. It's like the performance implications, number one, because longer term, you now don't have that PCL there. So you've got to stay really on top of strengthening rehab, stability rehab to kind of keep your performance and your like dynamic stability off that knee really good. And there are some guys who struggled with that. Like, like Andrew Fafida, for example, was one who was an absolute worldie and just like his footwork laid at the line and all that kind of stuff. But he re- it really went downhill sort of later in his career. We see, and I know I see it in a lot of my guys too, is that a lot of you guys who have your PCL injuries but don't have surgery go on to have like meniscus tears and stuff like that because you, you all of a sudden don't have that PCL there. So the meniscus is just an increased risk. And someone like GI, I wanted to bring him up because it effectively ended his career early. Like he ended up, I know part of that was mental and, and GI's mental struggles that he was having with those kind of things. But, and he had the history of ACL injury and all that kind of stuff, but he had the PCL issue, which eventually just resulted in his knee getting to a point where it was just no good. It was no good. And, and for feeders knees, like for was like famously, said, oh, I could be medically retired at this point. And that was about yeah. 18 months before he even actually retired. He was at the point where he's like, I mm. could theoretically be medically retired right now because of the state of my knee. And I'm like, yeah. So that's probably the biggest thing for me with Cleary is that the PCL, while we've said, you know, um, it's such a fantastic effort and I can't believe he did it. But also, on the other hand, you know, it doesn't need surgery. He can just rehab it and all that kind of stuff. It does give me some, at least a, a 5 to 10% more mid to long-term concerns about him uh, just because of the implications we've seen with PCLs in the past. It's not, I'm not sitting here saying he's going to, you know, be forced in early retirement or anything like that. But we've seen guys like your GIs, you know, later in their career, like GI really... He, he he didn't fall off a cliff, but he, he definitely came back to the pack in terms of his mobility and his his way around that. So whether Cleary, you know, later in his career has to go down that SJ path of, you know, becoming a less of a, you know, less of a runner for a bit or, you know, his knee might give him troubles or something like that. It's just something to keep an eye on anyway, and I think it's an interesting point for people to consider moving forward. Yeah, I like that as a summary, Brian. I don't think there's anything else I wanted to add on Nathan Cleary there. So I think what we might do is move forward to another really interesting one. I think this is probably the one I really want to dive deep on uh, because we're going to talk about Carlo Olawapu. So he's obviously at the Bulldogs there, only going 19 in January, and he's sort of been documented in the media as needing uh, neck surgery. So I'll probably flick to you about what, that sort of has been specifically and then we might sort of talk about what that might mean for him and what the implications for that might be or the indications might be for or against Carl Oluwapu there, I reckon. Yeah, mate. I think this is another story where being physios, you sat there and, you know, you, you understand the implications of Cleary doing what he did on a PCL injury and you can't believe it. I think this, and and look, the headlines have said, you know, career-saving surgery and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, there has been a bit of, you know, mayo put on uh, on the stories. But I just, uh, having the surgery that he is going to have at such a young age, and we don't know the exact surgery, but your options pretty much are fusion, uh, disc replacement, 
I would be shocked if it's just like a like a microdiscectomy or a laminectomy at the back mm. or a foraminotomy, which are sorry, they're all big words, but effectively where they go in and like shave stuff away. That 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 is an option for these kind of things, but that that's a more I guess a minor as far as spinal surgeries go in inverted. And I guess numbers. they're all decompressive in nature, yeah. aren't they? That's that's the goal is yeah. decompressive type surgery. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like I, I'd be surprised if it's one of those more minor ones. Like the the way that they're talking, and I mean, you know, Minicello has been involved, and Minicello famously had fusions in his neck. He's put him onto the same surgeon. Uh, so you're thinking like potentially a fusion, like. For, for someone like this, I just I, I can't think of a, a an example myself that I have seen in in my practice, nor in the NRL, nor in rugby, AFL. There, there might be some out there that I don't know of, and I know you're going to give in a second a really good example in the NFL, which I which I think is really interesting. But just to show that this is a really it's a really significant. Surgery. I think that's the biggest thing. And we've had guys have it. We, you know, Zeb Taya has had it. Chance Nickel Clockstar, Joey Leilua, you know, we've had. And then, and then you, Joey Johns's, Anthony Minicello, these kind of guys. So there's been plenty of guys have these significant fusion uh, disc replacement surgeries over the time in the NRL. But the biggest thing to point out is a lot of those guys are mid 20s at the youngest um, or older. So the the component which we'll talk about in a second is they're skeletally mature. So you know they're they're, they're fused. They've done their growing. Their bones aren't gonna aren't gonna you know move anymore or change too much more is a big component. But then the other component is that even though a, a lot of these guys were able to play on after that surgery, so many of them were then had ongoing effects of the injury. So it was something that they you know their performance was diminished or they dealt with ongoing neck pain you had guys like uh, Matt Scott and James Tamo up at the Cowboys they had ongoing issues with their necks those kind of things so so getting such a significant surgery at such a young age it's a bit unprecedented in the NRL as far as I'm aware and what I've tracked particularly over the last you know six or seven years and I just think, yeah, I, I think not enough probably has been really made about because it's it's just kind of been like before it was announced he was going to get the surgery, it's like, is he going to be able to have surgery to save his career? And now it's like, oh, he's, having, he's found a surgeon who's going to give him career-saving surgery. So, sweet, like, it's fine. And it's kind of like being decided and I'm like – this is this is not as cut and dry as like oh he's found a surgeon who will do it because by all accounts I think Gus kind of intimated that they'd had two other surgeons the first two opinions were like no we're not going to do surgery on someone so young like you're you either need to retire or you need to give it a rest for a significant period of time he's obviously already tried rehab side of things because he's been dealing with it since mid-year. So it's not like they're rushing to surgery. They've tried it for a while. And, and there was also a suggestion that's like a congenital thing, so something he's had since birth. But yeah, I, I just think this is a situation that we're probably, if you know somehow we convince our wives to continue to let us do this podcast for the next couple of seasons, I feel like Carla Luapu is someone we will be talking about um, a fair bit over the next couple of seasons, just in terms of how he's dealing with it, how his performance is, is he getting any ongoing symptoms? 
I just I would love to think that we'll go the next two years and he'll return to play. You know, the average is somewhere in that three to six month range. They've said mid next year, so I'd love to think he comes back at six months and just doesn't have any more problems with it and it's no more considerations. But I just, that would surprise me. I think, um, yeah, you've you've definitely got a good example there from the NFL and, and some good insight into it so far away mate yeah i'll fire away with the nfl example to kick off and i guess this is a very niche example but the guy i've got sort of um just in the back of my head was a guy called justin ross who got he was undrafted to the chiefs a couple of years ago but initially blew up um out of clemson uni when they won the national championship against um alabama and he had a massive game at age 18 i think he was and anyway so i think he had two really good years was by all accounts going to be a lock for a top five pick. And then he had a contact injury. I think it was just a tackle contact injury running a normal route, um, scanned his neck, and he had a congenital fusion. So he's got a very um, unusual diagnosis, which I don't know too much about, to be honest. It's called, um, what's it called here? It's called Clipple-Field syndrome. So it's basically a cervical vertebral fusion syndrome, very rare um, so it's like an abnormal fusion of two or more bones in the neck. So it's very uncommon. And, and it does sort of put you at high risk for disc issues as well. So whether he had um, issues from a you know neurocompressive point of view or whether it was a more of a disc issue where it was a congenital fusion. And so what they ended up doing for him was a multi-level fusion. Um, and what he ended up doing, so he was undrafted. He hasn't played a lot, but he has come back and played. But he was obviously a top five pick had this really awful run with surgery and the rehab with it, and then he went undrafted, and now he's not really an enormously, I guess, relevant player. He's sort of on the back end of a roster. And I guess that's one thing that really, really makes me worried for someone like Carl Luapu, just without knowing a lot of the detail, is we see this spectrum of outcomes with neck fusions as being just vast. They're just enormously variable. I think you made a good point about Joey. Gordon Tallis was another one. Um, but then you go to the other side of the coin and you look at like Chancellor Clockstar, even just very recently, he's absolutely carving up for the Kiwis in, in the test match against um, Australia just recently. So he's, a, he's doing really, really well in the short term, of course. We're not sort of looking too far ahead with that. But I think just the range of outcomes that can happen from something like this is really profound. And I, I sort of I wonder about the information. I guess we were talking about it. I don't know the implications or indications for this for neck fusion surgery, whether you need to be skeletally mature or not, um, especially because we were sort of talking about, well, with scoliosis, they tend to like to do them for thoracic spine when they're not at skeletal maturity because it's too hard to correct it once they're skeletally mature. So I don't know with Carl or Lappi being, you know, just turning 19 in January, what options are there for him, um, what that sort of looks like mid-long term, what sort of impacts that's going to have on him, you know, mentally and physically moving forward, just with, with that in, in the in the back of his mind, I suppose, as well. Um, because he's he was really, really good in the few chances he had this year, a really badly beaten Bulldogs team, just physical, skillful. Like some of the touches he had this year were unbelievable. And as a Queensland fan, I really want to see the best out of him because of how highly he was touted coming through the ranks. So, I guess a lot of sort of unknown from from that point of view, but I guess we, we do have a few examples of people that have been there and done that with it with, you know, a congenital issue or maybe it is a more a neural compressive issue. It's hard to really know, Brian. We don't have a lot of that detail, unfortunately, but 
I think in when I see someone who's age 19 potentially having a multi-level fusion with or without a depression, as a physio who is in a persistent pain clinic, I guess the, the people that I see are always the ones who don't do well. So I get a bit of a slanted sort of population that come through the clinic that I go through and Far out, we see a lot of people that have, you know, persisting pain post-spinal surgery, whether it's lumbar spine, thoracic spine, um, neck. Um, again, I get a loaded population, so I'm not saying that's the outcome with everyone and I'm not ragging surgeons about that, but it it is one of those things that does make me a little bit apprehensive to sort of hear that that may or may not be what he's facing moving forward. So from my point of view, I hope he is in good hands and he's had, you know, a few opinions on it. He's been talking to the right people and he makes a really good informed decision and, you know, whatever he chooses to do, he just gets on with it and rehabs the house down either which way. Yeah, and I think that's the the key for me is that it, it obviously, especially Minicello, has had a good result with this particular surgeon and this surgeon is confident that he's able to, you know, do something really well for Oluwapu. And, like, I've got no doubt, I still think the odds are overwhelmingly in his favour that his career is going to continue. It's more, for me, what does his, yeah, what does his health look like once he's back playing week in, week out footy for the next, you know, he's 18, so, what, 14 years? For, you know, 14, 15 years if he's a worldie and he's as good as we all expect him to be. So, yeah, it's a, it's a long time to play footy with a fusion a long time, a fusion or whatever that surgery may be. So hopefully we get a few more surgical details and we can be a bit more, you know, specific about what exactly is going on. I, I wonder whether they're going to do a disc replacement, like, you know, like rather than fuse it down, yeah, do a disc replacement. And oh, like it freaks me out too, to yeah. be honest. But it's just, it's just like, I just, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to if we hear anything. And I think, uh, Oluwapu's manager has been in the media quite a bit in terms of like talking about it and stuff like that. So I wonder whether after surgery he'll kind of get in the media and give us, you know, some detail about what's going on. Maybe. But yeah, definitely something to, yeah, I think we'll be talking a lot more about. Yeah, I probably just wanted to add one more thing there, Brian. I just remember with disc replacement, it almost, to me, it almost scares me a bit more because I just remember Chris McQueen before he had his, before he went from South to the West Tigers. Um, it didn't end his career, but he was never, ever the same player after that. Um, that's that's for sure. And I suppose the other thing that people hear a lot when they hear about, like, you know, neck fusion or lumbar spine fusion, a lot of people think that means that your available range of motion is severely diminished. But what's important to keep in mind, this is a nerd chat for, for those who want to skip along a few seconds, is that even if you have a single or multi-level fusion, you have an amount of like redundant movement available that you can compensate with, you know, neck range into flexion and extension and rotation to the point where you nearly have, you know, what you would have had pre-surgery, particularly in people that are young, active and well. Um, you see it a lot with lumbar spines. Like you see some people that have, you know, lumbar spine, interbody fusions, and their their range is actually pretty good. And you look at it and you think, oh, like when I was a, you know, grad physio, I just thought, oh, these people will just move like this and it will just be like a board. But people have, um, you know, the spine has a fairly good amount of sort of like, they say like redundant movement available. So it has a bit more there than you normally take it through. And then after you have a fusion, you can actually, you know, cash that in a little bit if you do the right rehab with it. So it's not all doom and gloom if you are sort of staring down the barrel of that and thinking that I'm going to be really debilitated, I'm going to have no range, that's going to be, you know, something that impacts my quality of life. We do see people that have good outcomes with that as well. So I think that's the other side of the coin that's worth keeping in mind, uh, particularly for elite athletes. Anything else for Carl? Sorry, we've sort of gone on about him there for a bit, but he's – 
to me, just so, so interesting. We'll move on to Cameron Murray next. So he's battling a bit of, is it knee tendonitis that he's sort of battling on and off there, Brian? Do you think that's going to impact his off-season workload potentially? No, I'm not overly stressed here. I think that, like, you, tendonitis is, and, and tendonitis, I'm sure there's a few physios out there. Anytime I put tendonitis and I received two DMs about this, how dare I call it tendonitis? Yeah. I only called it tendonitis because that's what the kangaroos called it. I'm not about to... As you know, I seem to understand, and a lot of you guys seem to understand, but uh, physios who work in NRL clubs don't seem to understand. I'm not here to correct them or to do anything. So if they call it tendonitis, that's what I'm going to put out there. But uh, yeah, issues with tendons like this come on chronically over time. So this is something that is very unlikely to have appeared in the last week like I'd be shocked like it's probably something he's been dealing with for a while been building up uh guys deal with this kind of stuff all season so it's something that got bad enough towards the end of a long season that he had to miss a game with it uh but yeah I think he's gonna have eight weeks off now which is the the best management I had a lot of people jumping in my dms you know what is the I've got tendonitis what is the best uh, you know, the best management for it. And while I can't answer your all of your specific things, I've, I've learned very quickly, unfortunately, they are the type of DM that I really can't answer. Is like, this is my specific situation. Can you tell me what to do? It's just a legal nightmare. Uh, but in, in general, for tendinopathies or, or, or overuse issues with tendons, one of the be- the, the, the gold standard for treatment is load management. Uh, so, you know, control load. And that's not complete rest. He'll obviously have a fair bit of, you know, rest over the next six to eight weeks. I think it's a, either a six to eight week break they have to have via the uh, CBA. Um, and then him coming back in the new year, they'll just control his training loads really well. So I don't think it's something that uh, will affect him into next year. Very good. I don't have too much more to add there for that one because I want to talk more about Charles with Clockstar. So we talked about him with his fusion, how good he's going you know, off the back of that. But then the post that you put up about him playing through a broken rib in that last game of the season for the Kiwis, racking up run meters, post-contacts, playing out of his skin, doing that with a broken rib? Unbelievable. Mate, this is – Chance is like one of my proudest, like, bandwagon things. Like, I – when he moved to the Raiders and was looking like getting that fullback spot, like, I had just always been such a big fan of what he did at the Warriors, and I just – I couldn't believe that he wasn't getting a run. And so when he went to the Raiders, I was all aboard. Like, I remember that preseason, I, especially from a fantasy uh, super coach point of view, I was like, get on him. This guy's a gun. Like, I love what he does. He reminds me of RTS to a degree, mm. you know, that kind of thing. I'm just so and, – and, like, I make jokes about, like, how did the Raiders let him go because like, he's just such a good – and he seems like he'd be such a good guy to have at your club. Like, you know, just a, just a guy who, once again, a bit like in that Dylan Edwards mould where he's just a guy who's going to do the tough stuff. Like, he's going to – he's going to start off your sets well. He's not the flashiest fullback going round. And, and there are people calling for – you know, Joey Manu to go to fullback and all that kind of stuff. But the he has these games in him, Chance. And, and to do that 
with a broken rib, I mean, I, I really would like to think that it's not Michael Maguire putting mayo on like a rib cartilage injury or something like that, and there actually is a fracture there because mm. it just like it's just crazy. Like the the broken ribs, we speak about it all the time on this show. Any rib injuries, even if it is like a rib cartilage issue or something like that. They're so painful. They, they are the most, almost the most painful injury a footy player can suffer because it doesn't just affect you when you get that area hit. It's like every time you twist, every time you breathe, you, you've got pain there. So for him to do that with a broken rib, no, it's not something that's going to affect him into next year. He's got a good six to eight weeks to let that settle, so he should be fine. But, yeah, once again... Uh, the, the response, to be fair, the response to my post about this has been overwhelmingly positive. Like, people have been very, very on board with giving him the props he deserves. So I don't think the coverage has been undersold in that respect. But, yeah, just love seeing Chance do what he does. I hope he continues to do it. And I'm I'm really keen to see now that the Warriors are going to keep AFB, which is good news as well. you got RTS yeah. coming in there as well. Yeah, I'm just really keen. I'm really keen to watch the Warriors go around again next year. Yeah, awesome. there's a good vibe around the place, isn't there? And, you know, we say it about every team. Oh, it's good when they're going good. But there's something special about the Warriors when they're going good. Like, it, it's just a different level. I, I think that needs to be appreciated. And, you know, like, like we said before the start of this season, they've done so hard through COVID. Like, they really had the worst run through COVID where they had to live and how they had to do it. So seeing them back at home and killing it is good to see. Good for footy. I'm all about it. Um, and good for Chance as well. Like he's, he's gone over there and, and made that an absolute win. So hopefully he just keeps ripping and tearing into next year. Next person on the list here, Brian, is Sloan. So he had a syndesmosis surgery. Um, was that a few weeks ago after Curry knockout? I think he got injured at Curry knockout, didn't he? Yeah, Curry knockout. So ten, like three months recovery. He should be sweet heading into, yeah, like January, February kind of training. So not something that will affect him overly in his preseason. So I don't think Dragons fans should be too filthy. I think in terms of an injury like uh, Hammer, Hamaso uh, Tabuifado suffered mm. the same injury in the World Cup late last year. That's right for Samoa. Yeah, and, and came yeah. back and played how he played for the Finns from round one, right? So it's not it's not the injury like uh, that you don't want to suffer. The return to performance from that's pretty consistent. So pretty I good. think you should be fine. On the topic of ankles, we're going to talk about Ryan Pappenhausen here. Have you heard much of an update there through Paps about how he's tracking after that ankle fracture and surgery, pin and plate? Yeah, so we, we've heard that he's starting to wean out of the boot, which uh, it's not a major update at this point in time. Like, I'm sure people want, will want to hear stuff more when he's getting back to running and doing all that kind of stuff. But I think so far the main update here is that it's sounding like it's business as usual. Like, it's kind of, uh, kind of what we expected uh, around that hopefully that three to four month recovery kind of range so he's starting to wean out of the boot more weight bearing stuff working on walking and then hopefully into some form of running and, and and training early in the new year so yeah i'm i'm optimistic on he on on him coming back we've spoken about in that big podcast that we had sort of around it happening the implications probably mostly sit around how he's going to rehab the ankle and then have the knee that he had problems with on the same side. How's that 
rehab process going to go as he starts to ramp things up a little bit there. Uh, but yeah, more just to say that it's sounding like things are going as expected. Yeah, that's really good news for Ryan Babineers. God, he needs some some good luck for his way for 2024. I'm going to cross fingers and toes and everything that that happens. Next on the list here was Corey Harawiri Nara, Brian. So he was ruled out for the majority of the season after suffering seizures. I didn't sort of see too much information. I can't recall exactly. Like they didn't sort of document exactly why that was or if they had a sort of underlying medical diagnosis for that, did they, as to, as to why he suffered those things and then with a return to play in mind with that. Mate, funny you say that because I would have said the same thing until I knew we were doing this podcast and I thought, oh, yeah, that's a fair bit, big bit of news. So I typed it in and I think it was about maybe a couple of months ago, two months ago, I found one article where I can't remember if it was someone from the Raiders or it might have been his manager was interviewed and I'm going to be really careful here because we're straying, we're, we're in dangerous territory in terms of like my... DMs being filled with anti-vaxxers going mental. But the I found this really interesting is that – so effectively what they were saying is the way that he passed out and the seizures that he had were obviously very, very much like, uh, br- like brain-related, right? Like neuro-related. That was the yeah. way that he presented seizures are a neuro – uh, a neuro-related symptom, all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the checks they were doing were ne- neurological-related. When they did further testing, they actually found cardiac issues as well. So I think it was inflammation of the heart tissue. Now people are going to jump in and be like, vaccine, 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 all that kind of stuff. I will put it out there that the risk of those kind of cardiac inflammation also exists to a high degree after COVID, after having COVID as well. So I'm not sitting here like you're not going to be able to convince me that it was definitely COVID. You're not going to be able to convince me that it was definitely the COVID vaccine. The the risk exists there for, for that entire situation. It could be something not to do with that at all. And I think the ability of people you know, analysing this situation to sit back and not point to one thing. And so many times on this show we say, like, it's not that one thing. Like, it's it it, it would mm. be very, very hard to sort of point and be like, it was definitely that time when he had COVID or it was definitely when they, he had that COVID vaccine. But they were kind of really puzzled. They were like, look, everything that we saw and, and, we st- and they still thought – it was a neuro-related thing, so something okay. to do with his brain. That was what they were sticking to. and But the fact that they found the cardiac stuff, they, they were really puzzled. Effectively, it was the last uh, update that mm. I could find. It was one article was the only article I could find on it. So, yeah, I just found that really interesting. It's not my area of expertise, obviously, so... I'm not going to sit here and try and act like I understand exactly what's going on there. And I mean, the people who are treating him sound like they, they're not exactly sure what's going on. But yeah. uh, the, good, the good news is that he has since, since that article two months ago, he has been cleared to return next year. So on that, I would assume that A, any cardiac issues have been cleared and B, any neurological issues have been cleared. Because so, I don't think he would be cleared to return if either of those things were hanging over his head. Yeah, and I think to that point, like seizures are so multifactorial, like there's so many different reasons why someone can suffer seizures and there's a lot of 
specific investigations that people need to go through that with uh, with the particularly imaging modalities and your blood work and those type of things. So I think it just would have been a case of just going through all those things from the multiple specialists that I'm sure he's seen and figuring out if there's anything. And sometimes it gets to those point where some symptoms that people experience that can be not as specific or not really lend themselves to a certain diagnosis can just be hard to nut out, can't they? Like we will know someone who's had you know, ill health for whatever reason and they've just had these constellation of symptoms that aren't super specific and they can't really figure out, you know, if there's an actual underlying sort of working diagnosis or if there's just if it's just more non-specific and then they just have to sort of take a wait and see until it sort of rears its head. So hopefully for CHN, he's back on the field next year and ripping in, ripping in for the Raiders. Very last one, Brian. So we're going to talk about Jess Surges here. Toe injury for the Jill Roos there. Gee, she played good in those international games. Like she was unbelievable. Um, between her and Isabel Kelly, like it's hard if you're thinking Bundy Mixer next year to go away from either of them in the centre spot, isn't it? Like, they are just such guns. What do you know about Jess Surges and her t- potential toe injury there? Hey, once again, I thought this is an interesting case because she suffered a broken toe in the World Cup last year, came home, had surgery to stabilise that fracture, then ended up back in hospital because they thought she had an infection. Uh, thought, or, or, sorry, no, maybe, maybe she came back... And and when is it, but effectively they thought she had an infection, and were treating her with antibiotics and all this kind of stuff. But then she had another scan and it was like fractured again, or 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 they hadn't discovered the fracture in the first place. Effectively, it's just crazy to me that she she'd been dealing with it since the World Cup last year. It hasn't really been fixed to the point where she's talking about potentially getting it amputated. It like it's it's that bad with her at the moment. So it is her pinky toe. I had a few people ask about balance and all that kind of stuff. doesn't really affect it. Your pinky toe, if it was your big toe, we'd be having a whole different conversation. But your pinky toe, uh, from I was actually chatting to our podiatrist about the other day, he said effectively in those people who lose a pinky toe, what tends to happen is over time the other three toes, so not your big toe, the other three toes tend to spread out. Like just naturally, mm. they, uh, they tend yeah, to spread okay. out and kind of take up more space. So you, you tend to compensate for it fairly well. So yeah, no, nothing long term to be overly concerned about. But yeah, I, I just find it, uh, yeah, what an effort to play the way that she did this season. Uh, having yeah, having that sort of base of support to go off. Yeah, yeah, really good shout. I I don't think there'd be too much else I had there, Brian. I. I guess for, for Jess, it doesn't sound like she's going to miss time, but the amputation would be a fairly drastic thing, wouldn't it? I guess Angus Crichton sort of set the bar there for everyone, like, to, to sort of say, well, I got my, you know, if you get amputated, like, are you going to get yours cut off? Like, it's like sort of how tough are you? Are you, are you on my level or are you not on my level? So, yeah, hopefully for Jess, she can, she can keep a hold of her toe. I don't know what that would sort of mean for her long-term aesthetically. It wouldn't be sort of the, the prettiest thing to sort of look down at every day, I suppose. But you, you have to sort of do what you have to do as an elite athlete. That just comes with the territory, doesn't it, unfortunately? Other more specific or more general questions, let's say, Brian. We've got a couple here. The first one is around Aaron Rodgers. So it's been well documented that he had an Achilles tear in week one of the NFL season there. But there's been a lot of discussion about his Achilles repair and what his sort of rehab protocols look like. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on the Aaron Rodgers situation, the type of repair he's had, the type of surgery he's had, and how he's going about his rehab? 
Yeah, so for those who don't follow the NFL, just to give you a quick overview so you know why we're talking about this. So we, we don't tend to talk about just, you know, random uh, NFL or what any other sport injury situations. But this one is particularly interesting. And I've had is definitely the injury that I've had the most, like, DMs questions about from another sport in my time doing NRL physio stuff. It has been crazy the amount of interest in this because he suffered an Achilles rupture in week one. It is now week nine, week nine, I think, in the NFL. So suffered a rupture. It's of particular importance, A, because Aaron Rodgers is a huge player. Like, he he is a QB for the New York Jets, has just transferred there this year. It's kind of like their you know, white knight hoping that I'm sure Jets fans were hoping he was going to come there and be like their savior. But the other component is he's 39 years old. So he's quite advanced in age Uh, for a QB. Like you hear 39 as an NRL fan, you might go, Oh my God, like how's he still, but QBs can, you know, can kind of play to that late thirties, early forties. In some cases, we've seen it with Tom Brady recently still played to a high level. So it is possible. So he's 39 years old. He's had that Achilles rupture. He's gone and he's had uh, an Achilles repair surgery with uh, what they call a speed bridge. Now, it's not as cutting edge and new as a lot of the American media likes to make out that it was. Uh, I I saw a lot of articles sort of saying this new fandangled uh, surgical technique. Like, it's been around for years. It's, It's something that is relatively for those higher-level kind of guys, it is really, really common, those higher-level athletes. So he's had that speed bridge surgery. And where I think it now... Because none of that so far is anything too out of the ordinary. But then you've seen... After two weeks, he was out of the boot, which is usually a six-week process. So usually you're in that moon boot for six weeks. He was out of the boot after two weeks... He's doing all. He's being very public with his rehab. You know, doing a lot of, a lot of stuff already with some weight bearing things, that kind of stuff. And now has been out on the field pre-game throwing the ball, and people have been losing their collective minds about the fact that he's out there throwing the ball. So I think the there's a lot to talk through here. We probably will try not to go too long on it, but effectively. My overall thoughts on it, because people have sort of said, you know, where do you sit on it? Is it, is this superhuman? Is it... So it's a mix. Like, he absolutely is doing something right. Because even in... Even if you just say he is rushing it, to have the mobility and the confidence, the mental confidence to be able to move the way he is, even if I took my most confident... Achilles uh, patients that I've had and told them after two weeks, you've got to get out of the boot. So many of them would have been so hesitant to do that because it's mm. such a major injury. They, 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 you know, that they, they feel quite significant pain with it. They're, they're very hesitant with that kind of stuff. And then to be kind of moving around and throwing a ball with some foot movement after six weeks, I think it was, was also something that I was like, a few of my patients would, many of my patients would not have, you know, even considered doing that. Because the point we make about Achilles, sorry, ACLs a lot of the time is 
as the physio, you kind of have to hold people back because they, they feel pretty good after six weeks. They're like, yeah, I'm feeling good. And you have to be the physio, be like, I know you feel good, but you need to hold back. Achilles aren't like that a lot of the time. Like people are still in quite a bit of pain. They don't have strength in the area. It's quite tight. It can be sore. All that kind of stuff. Swelling as well. That's right. And they get swollen for a long time. 100%. So very rarely are you there in those early stages, like after four, six weeks, trying to hold people back. Because the recovery, the early recovery from an Achilles repair isn't all that accelerated and it doesn't feel all that good. So there's that component to it is that there is definitely parts of this that I'm like, whatever he is doing is fantastic. But there's also the other few components. I think, A, he's definitely – well, he's not doing it purposely, but what he has done so far is making people think that he is a lot better than he is. And 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 so the perfect example is that throw that he did at six weeks where he kind of jogged or shuffled back a little bit and then shuffled forward. It, it, it's a tear to his – so he's out of the boot. He will have an insert, a plastic insert – in that shoe that comes up his leg, so he's wearing tracksuit pants every time, that insert, that plastic insert, will hold his left foot in a position of comfort for the Achilles and make sure that it does not move. So it's not, even though he's out of the boot, he's still got something in that shoe that means that the pressure going through that Achilles is minimal to none, right? It's very, very minimal. So you have that component, uh, which, you know, not a a lot of people have seen that. But then also, even when he was throwing that ball, he's mostly just pushing off his right foot. His right foot is doing all the work, especially as a right-handed QB. That's the foot that you're going to push off. And I think we've seen, like, Kirk Cousins, he suffered his Achilles injury recently on his right. That is so much harder to come back from and to accelerate as a right-handed QB because you are dropping back on that right foot, pushing through that foot. That is the one that will have a lot of pressure on it. So the fact that it's his left, his left foot in that video where he's throwing is basically not doing much at all. So even though it looks fantastic, and as I said, it's it's a testament to him that he has the confidence to be able to move as smoothly as he does, his left foot is still not doing much, and nor should it be at six weeks, nor should it be. Uh, And then the other component of it, and they've spoken about, you know, when can he come back and all that kind of stuff. We've spoken about how these situations happen. He's doing it with an increased risk of injury. There's no two ways about that. The the healing things, and I should have mentioned at the start for those who don't know about Rogers, he is a bit of he's got that reputation of like a free thinker. He's anti-vax, he anti-medicine to a degree with certain things. He, you know, the the I think that he's made jokes or, or sort of talked about listening to like dolphin mating calls as part of his you know process or recovery. He does like dark therapy psychogenics and all this kind of stuff. So he's he's a bit left field with all that kind of stuff. But there are still – there's healing times, right? There's healing times for these things. So he is absolutely doing it with an increased risk, not only of of uh, re-rupture, and that, that is a risk, but also – and probably the biggest concern for me and what I've looked – because I've had two patients who've accelerated and been out of the boot at two weeks with this injury. So I have seen it happen. 
both of them, and look, you can use this to shit on me as a physio if you want, both of them had horrible outcomes. Uh, they were both athletes, and the they found a surgeon who was happy to accelerate them and get them out of a boot in two weeks and kind of really push it through. And both of them didn't re-rupture, but they both had – effectively, they healed with loose – Achilles, like their their Achilles, because they pushed it too soon, too quickly. That Achilles, it wasn't completely healed. So when it healed, it healed stretched, and such an important part of that Achilles is that power when you're pushing off. So they just lost a little bit of that. And I mean, I'll talk in a minute because I want to throw to you. I'll talk in a minute about what I think about his return to play. But I know on that point, I think you've got a really good point about yeah, sort of how it is managed conservatively and how important it is to not have that Achilles heal in a loose way. Yeah, so I guess the anecdotes that um, I've spoken to quite a few clinicians about over the years, because I guess in and health and public health, we see a lot more non-operative Achilles ruptures than operative ones. It's just, it's more, it's very uncommon for us to see actual Achilles repairs, to be fair. Like we would see Fowler-Kennedy protocol requested for most of the people that we see. And the biggest thing that the people say is you don't want to take them out of like that sort of plantar grade position in the moon boot too quickly to get them in a long and loose position rather than a short and tight position. So that's the sort of vernacular terminology that you can use in the, in a nerd setting from a physio point of view that if you want a better outcome for someone, generally speaking, for that force reduction or force translation, you want to heal them sort of more shorter and tighter. So it does mean they don't necessarily have as much active dorsiflexion range for a little bit longer. But from a tendon integrity point of view, that's actually a more beneficial place to heal rather than having really good dorsiflexion range but then being long and loose to use those type of terms for the Achilles. So that's that's sort of the, sort of the way we sort of go about it. So to your point, it's really nice to lay that out to the individual in front of you who's having you know rehab for a non-operative Achilles protocol to say to them, look, it will feel tight, it will feel stiff. That's actually better for you than it feeling you know, maybe less painful but a little bit more loose with a better sort of, you know, knee to wall range or active dorsiflexion range or something like that. So um, that's the sort of terminology that I'm a little bit more familiar with. So I don't know if anyone else listening subscribes to the same sort of thinking, but um, that sort of touches on your point as well and sort of um, just gives credence to the way you've described it there with the people that sort of try to get out a little bit quicker or they get their range going quicker. Um, not always going to give you the best outcome from a from a force production point of view, from a say a sprinting point of view, from a resistance point of view as well. Yeah, so I think the the big question is when can he come back? He's he's obviously angling towards a return this season. I think for him to come back and have any any sort of impact, he'd have to come back at around three and a half months, three and a half, four months post-surgery. People have said, is that even possible? Like, surely not, all that kind of stuff. I guess the big ones I want to look at is we had, uh, it's pretty, st- well, not pretty standard, that's a lie, but we've seen guys consistently come back to NRL football. So these are guys like Darius Boyd, Carl Lawton, these kind of guys have come back and played good level NRL football at five months post-surgery. So that has occurred. And in the NRL, all respect to Aaron Rodgers and what he does on the on the NFL gridiron, he is not putting the pressure through his Achilles that a Darius Boyd or a Carl Lawton will be when they go back out there and play 
rugby league because they are involved in tackles. They are, you know, sprinting. Theoretically, Rogers can come back and try and limit himself to be a real pocket passer, which, you know, he might need to take off every now and then, but he's not going into contact all that often, pushing through contacts, having to drive through that. So we've had that at five months. We've also had guys like the Russian... Uh, gymnast, uh, I want to say his first name's Arta, I think, A-R-T-U-R, and he came back in three months to gymnastics with no – he wasn't doing dismounts, so he wasn't jumping and landing, but then he was back to doing that by the Olympics at four months, I think. So, uh, like, uh, effectively where I go with this, it is absolutely possible for him to come back at three and a half to four months. Is it – Without risk, hell no. Is it something where he would be? You would expect him to be at good performance levels off that leg? Hell no. Can a right-handed QB with a left Achilles that isn't at one hundred percent still do pretty well? Absolutely, because as we've just spoken about, it's his lead leg. It's not his back leg, so he doesn't have to push off it as much. It's only if he, you know, the pockets pocket collapse and he needed to take off that he might need to he might need to really rely on it. But I think at thirty nine years old, the Jets. Look, I'd love to think that I won't like. I might have to eat more words here, but the Jets aren't going to win the Super Bowl. I don't think. Like, I, I just don't see that happening. He signed a. You might be able to correct me here. A three-year deal, so he's got this year and two more years. I think. So he's still got time to to be influential for them. Unless they really, really improve and they're going to play tomorrow. So by the time this comes out, I might, you know, look a little bit more stupid because they have a big win, uh, you know, when they play. But, yeah, I just think it absolutely is possible. And the anybody who says it's not possible, like I, I think all these things are possible. It's just the level of risk and the level of performance that you want to come back at. Like the level of risk is going to be high for, for a re-rupture and the level of performance isn't going to be anywhere as good as he would want it to be because you just cannot, it doesn't matter to me how many, you know, psychedelic treatments he has found that are, you know, rewriting the laws of whatever he wants to rewrite. There, there are tissue healing properties that unless you're, you know, like um, without getting a lawsuit, using certain performance-enhancing things to make that happen, there are healing, you know, times to these things that will, you know, they're just there. And, and human bodies don't vary that much on these kind of things. So I think it's absolutely possible. Will he come back? I would be surprised purely because of that risk versus reward. We talk about risk versus reward on here all the time. I think if you looked at it and you went, yeah, the Jets are, you know, like if it was Nathan Cleary and he was the quarterback for the Penrith Panthers who hadn't won a, you know, a a comp in 40 years and they really, really needed him. He was the last piece they needed to win the comp. You could see it. And it's the same with Rogers. If, you know, if that was the case, I'd, I'd kind of wouldn't be surprised, but at 39 with a team, that's probably not going to win the Super Bowl with a less than 100% Aaron Rodgers. I just would be surprised if they risk it, especially considering he's got two years left on his contract. I mean, where where do you sit on it? You're probably the bigger NFL fan than me, so you might have a few more insights. Yeah, it's a really good discussion point. I 
I almost lean towards him playing, just depending on where the Jets' record is. I think the record dictate what he does. They're 4-3 and three at the moment with the game in hand. So say if it's week 16, they're 8-8, eight and eight, they're in a wild card spot, I tend to think he'll play. I think he'll be like, if I'm in a playoff sniff, because the AFC is pretty wide open. Like, you look at the two better teams there. It's really Baltimore that's really jumping out there because Kansas City probably aren't quite as going quite as well. You know, they're, they're still a seven-win team. But, like, Kansas City, they're thereabouts. The Bengals are sniffing around. The Jags are sniffing around. But the Jets are second best defensively in the NFL, but they're the second worst offensively in the NFL. So you sort of think... If Rogers just gives this team 21 points, if he throws for three or even if he can throw two in with a really good running game, with really good solid defense, they could be in the hunt. But, again, you've got to have a lot of things go your way, and I think they need to be alive for him to do that. My scenario is they're alive. He plays. If he re-ruptures, he just goes, well, I've got that much time until the next season anyway. I'll just rehab it till next season. And if he gets through that game but they don't win, he goes, well, I gave it a crack. Um, you know, he's not going to have that many chances at his age and at his point in his career anyway with the amount of salary cap he's going to be consuming. You've got to make a decision of like, well, how good is this team at the moment this year? And the Jets are a pretty bloody good team, um, albeit they just have nothing at quarterback behind him, which is, is always the way. You know, that's just the way teams are constructed. That's the salary cap at play. I... I would lean to him more playing because I think the Jets will be there, thereabouts. The AFC is pretty wide open. Like, there's not a lot of teams that are really separating themselves. And they're in a, you know, they're in a division with Miami and the Bills who will probably take wins off each other. So I don't think you'll see a team that's like a 12 or 13 win team. I think you'll see a lot of those teams be like at that nine, 10 marks. So if they're sort of eight or nine wins, I think you'll see Aaron Rodgers on the field this year. That'll be my. Big prediction, my Nostradamus prediction from from that point of view, mate. Yeah, so I think for me, as I said, you're definitely much more the bigger NFL expert than me. So maybe I've just got the uh, the the past Jets in my head as to being trash. So I I just kind of yeah go off that. But from my perspective, I think medically there is absolutely a good scenario, like a good chance that he can come back this season and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be it would be unprecedented for the NFL but it wouldn't be unprecedented based on what has happened in other sports and what is happening happening currently in the management of Achilles injury so it has it's not out of the realms of possibility in that respect I think it's more just accepting that he is able to come back because he's taking more risk for re-injury and likely to diminish performance. And interestingly, I think it's a really good time to record this podcast because the guy who owns the uh, the quickest return to play time for an Achilles injury in the NFL is Cam Akers, who came back a couple of seasons ago in yeah. five months, I think, I or four, four yeah, and a right. half months. Uh, so he holds the record, came back as a running back, Never really. He looked okay when he first came back, but his yards per carry still wasn't great. Um, but never really got back to the worldy running back that he was before that. And then today, he ruptured his other Achilles. Did he uh, really? He did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So today he ruptured his other Achilles. So he's like, and I think I saw some stats somewhere where it's like there's never been 
an NFL running back comeback after rupturing both Achilles. So it's potentially career over for him. Mm. So it just shows you, and once again, you talk about that risk, like, um, for Akers, he's a young guy. Rogers only got a couple of seasons left in him, likely anyway. So, but yeah, that's a there's a really interesting case, and it just shows you. By all means, Akers had played a couple of seasons uh, before rupturing the other one, but he hadn't performed all that well. Like his performance compared to pre-surgery was not. And, and the demands of running back are different to QB. And there's a whole, like, it's so multifactorial. But, yeah, I just think, yeah, it, it wouldn't be out of the realms of possibility for him to come back. And I, I wouldn't be shocked if he comes back and plays. I just think we uh, you need to accept that a big component of why these guys do it isn't because they've discovered some new treatment that is just halving recovery times. There, there is absolutely a component where he has access to so much that your regular athletes don't have access to, and that can add little percentages here and there. But it's such a big percentage of why they can come back earlier is just taking more risk. Yep. Really nicely put there. That's a good way to end that topic on Aaron Rodgers. On the NFL bandwagon again, Ryan, second question is about – the AstroTurf argument versus um, natural turf. There's a lot of discussion on should teams be playing on Astro, should they be playing on natural turf. There's a huge voice amongst the players saying playing on AstroTurf leads to higher um, injury rates. Um, a lot of athletes there prefer to play on natural grass and natural turf. Um, what are your thoughts and opinions on like the AstroTurf or synthetic turf versus natural turf? Um, that's happening at the moment in the NFL. Seems to be sort of seems to bob up and down every now and then, doesn't it? It's almost an annual thing. It's almost like akin to the Suncorp surface that we used to have that sort of like the discussion about Suncorp Stadium, how it looked sort of once a year, seemingly forever and ever and ever for as long as rugby league's been alive. Yeah, so I'm uh, a well documented turf hater. I, do, I just don't like it. I, I think where. Where analysis goes astray is like looking at Aaron Rodgers who tore his Achilles on turf and going, see, turf is really bad because inevitably two weeks later, I think, or even that week, J.K. Dobbins tore his Achilles on grass. So it's like like blaming one thing on – it's just never – it's never going to work. Like not every Achilles tear this season is going to be on turf and that kind of thing, but – yeah, I just it's it's been the the evidence that I've seen that there are there is evidence that unfortunately in these kind of research problems you I could sit on either side of this argument and present half a dozen studies that support me really really well. But the the strongest studies that I've seen have indicated that turf and and Surfaces that increase the friction coefficient, I think, if I'm going right in the physics. But effectively, anything that allows you to have really good grip on surface has an increased risk of injury for lower limb things like ACLs, ankle sprains. Because you foot, how many times in the NRL and the NFL for that matter, NFL fans, do we see the problem being somebody's foot getting stuck in the turf and then the tackle continuing while their foot is stuck? That That is a big problem. And we just see it time and time again. Turf is just not forgiving. 
it it jars up through the leg. It sends those forces. It doesn't have the give that turf does. I've got an article that is free for anyone to read on Patreon about why, you know, the, the, the softer when, you know, turf, even natural grass, when natural grass is a bit softer and had a bit of rain. It's actually preventative for major injuries like ACL injuries because it's soft. It's got a bit of give to it. And that's, I think, the argument against turf is it's just so unforgiving. It's so hard. You Your performance is fantastic on it because you can change direction on a dime. Speed, yeah. Yeah, yeah fantastic for performance. But the higher, the, the faster you can change direction, the higher those ground reaction forces are going through, up through your legs. Something's got to absorb that. And it's your ligaments, your tendons, you know, these kind of things. So, and then you've got the grazers, I think, which is like a whole other component. Yeah, like like, the burns, yeah. Oh, mate, it's just crazy. So, yeah, I just think I'm, I'm glad it's not an Australian thing. Thankfully, we've got a climate where we can kind of control it pretty well. My argument is, and, and if you haven't watched it yet, go and watch. I'm sure a lot of people have watched the Travis Kelsey, Jason Kelsey podcast because they're big Swifties and now they're regular listeners of that podcast. But if you haven't yet, go and watch the rant that Jason Kelsey has about it because he he pretty much, like I could not have said it better myself, he effectively says, you know, we can we we know there are stadiums out there now and there's one in the US I'm not sure which one it is where they literally have the grass on a big rolling you know platform yeah that's arizona there and i think vegas as well yeah, yeah and they roll it out into the car park get it some good sun and then there i think it's the there's one over in it might be barcelona or man city or one of those in in a yeah. poor climate where yeah, they it grow it drops yeah it yeah. drops down and they've got uv and all that kind of stuff like yeah. these guys have the money to do that like the the they the stadium owners or the team owners or whoever it is they have the money to do that so just do that just just do it just i think until the technology improves in turf i just i just struggle to see the argument if you've got the money, if you don't have the money, and a lot of people, I put out a tweet a while back about you know not liking turf, and I had a few people from the UK be like, look, it's like we can't afford grass, like we can't afford to have someone because the climate's no good, we can't afford it. And I'm like, in that kind of scenario, if you're like a a suburban club or something like that, and you can afford to put turf down, then you don't have to worry about it. Fair enough, because you, you otherwise you're dealing with a dirt patch, right? And I get that. This is more talking in professional leagues where the money is almost endless. Uh, yeah, I, I just think it it should be gone. I, I'm yeah, sure. I would have, yeah, I am. Yeah, I totally agree with your points. I um, when I went to the states in 2016. We did a tour at Denver Broncos Stadium at Mile High. So obviously Denver, Denver gets, you know, snowing conditions a lot of the, you know, winter time there. It gets very, very cold. What they have is they have natural that natural grass, um, but they have undergrass heating. So they have like some infrastructure built into the stadium where they can heat underneath the grass to keep the ground temperature at a certain temperature um, for grass to grow. So they play on natural turf. We went to the stadium, did the stadium tour, then we get went on the field. It is so nice, mate. Like this thing is like a lawn bowl green. It is phenomenal. And this was, you know, and they're like it's like this all year round. We know what we need to do. They've got really good infrastructure in place in some of those places. So it is doable. It is achievable even if you're not in a fantastic climate for some of those, you know, 
sporting teams like the NFL where you've got billionaire owners that could probably get into their pockets and, and do something like that um, because the overwhelming feedback from the player's point of view is that they would prefer to play on it. And I, I can sort of see that point as well. I think it, it sort of looks like a better option to me and, and sounds like for all involved it's a better option and there's um, sort of less injury risk as well. So I think that's sort of the, the wrap-up on artificial turf versus natural turf. Brian, any other things you wanted to add there? No, mate, I think that's it. We'll um, plans for the pod. I think we'll we we might have an interview or two coming out over the off season, which will be exciting. So you get a player on or something like that, just sort of talk through some things. But we'll probably try. I mean, I've got a few holidays, and I know you're here and there. But we we definitely need to try and have our golden sponge awards pod at some point to run through a few end-of-season awards because I've got some crackers. I was doing some thinking about it the other day and I put a tweet out there about the most influential injury, which I think there's a lot of interesting sort of cases you can make there. But there's some red-hot, some red-hot uh, nominations for coaching bedshit of the year. The 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 most renowned award from last year's uh, last year's ceremony. So, yeah, look, I'm excited for that. We'll get that out sometime over the next month. As I said, we'll try and get a player or two on potentially uh, between now and then. And then, yeah, once we get into the new year, ramp up will we'll be the place to go for any prep for the 2024 Supercoach Fantasy seasons. We'll be all over all the injuries and that kind of thing. So, But, uh, yeah, guys, uh, we knocked out a good one today. Hey, James, good to have you on again on a Monday night. Uh, mate, I'm sure you're preparing and ready to go for the Golden Sponge Awards sometimes over the next few weeks. Absolutely. I'm going to get my thinking cap on to recap and rehash all the best and worst bits of the NRL season that's been and done. The other thing I was thinking, Brian, is we need to have an accountability and integrity session about our Supercoach seasons as well. We really need to renew our early crows from this season just gone and and just provide feedback and obviously accountability because we're a podcast that has high integrity here so we want to be accountable for our actions and our hot takes from the start of the year so we'll probably have to rehash that as well we'll find time to squeeze that in yeah, I definitely uh, – I think there, there could even be a, a Golden Sponge Award for best take and worst take potentially, which would be uh, – Now we're talking. Yeah, I like it. All right, guys, uh, that's a wrap for this week. As always, if you like the pod, review, recommend to a friend, get them on board for 2024. We had more listeners. I think we doubled our listeners this year, or more than doubled, which is crazy. So that was awesome to see. Hopefully we continue, you know, moving up and up. We, we really appreciate you coming on and listening. Uh, as always, guys, up the mighty, mighty Redcliffe Dolphins and Val Tafare running a 1.2-kilometer time trial in five minutes today. What a weapon. I couldn't do it in that fast. So good on you, mate. Up the Dolphins. Suspected broken left fibula. Suffering syndesmosis. After that stem cell injury that he's come back from. That's about it, mate.